I wonder if anyone in here has ever felt like there is a disconnect between their heart on the one hand and their head on the other. Does anyone know what that's like? You know where you are clear about what you think, but your heart hasn't caught on yet to the ideas that are up here. So it's like, in effect, you're on two different paths with what you say you believe on the one hand, but then on how you walk through life on the other hand. I would suggest that from time to time, every person faces the kind of inner conflict that makes them feel like they're trying to walk two different roads in life at the same time. You know what that's like? Yeah. Three years ago on May 1st, May 1st, 2016, I was in a meeting in the evening at the church where Michelle and I, my wife and I, had been for 14 years. And at the end of that meeting, I was absolutely sure in my head that God was telling me it was time to stop being the pastor there and find a new path. And it had been a year for me, uh, at least, where I was wrestling with God over what the right thing to do would look like. And, and at the end of that year, it was May 1st, I had no question in my mind that God was saying, Christian, it's time for you to stop. Have you ever had a moment of clarity like that? Uh, where you knew God wanted you to do this thing. Maybe it wasn't that big, but maybe it was something that you were clear about. Do you know that experience? My head said it's time to stop. My heart said you cannot do that. Uh, for lots of reasons. For the relationships with dear friends that I had there. With this sense that I still had more to do in my mission. Especially, if I'm honest, with the fact that I didn't have another job lined up. That made it hard for me to go in the direction which my mind was telling me to go in. I reached out a few days later to a dear friend of mine who's an entrepreneur who had planted and, and started a number of very successful businesses. Uh, he was someone that I knew through church. He wasn't a Christian, but his wife was, and she brought him to church, and our friendship really amounted to his listening carefully to my sermons, and then he would ask me penetrating questions about them afterward. And they were the best questions. They really helped me grow as a preacher. And so I went to him. He knew that I'd been struggling with what to do next to, to share my strategy with him. And in fact, I was hoping that he would give me at least a part-time job in one of his businesses. <laughs> so I went to his house and I told him, this is what I'm facing. And I got to the point where I said, I'm confident now that it's time for me to stop being the pastor there. I'm sure of it. And then I asked him tentatively, but I asked him sincerely, can you give me a job? Because the one thing that's holding me back is I don't have something to go to next. Now, he didn't answer right away. He just looked at me, made me a little nervous. But then he said, let me ask you a question. How sure are you that now is the time for you to stop? Now, I said to him, I'm absolutely sure of it. My head knew. And I told him, I know we don't share faith, but God himself has made it clear to me that it's time for me to stop being the pastor there. There's no question at all in my mind. And then I said, but I don't have a job to go to yet, so I'm hesitant. He knew what was coming. <laughs> Would you give me temporary work? I'll do anything in any one of your businesses, but I can't stop until I have another job. Now, he took a long time to respond. My hands were sweating. Even as I tell you, it feels a little anxiety-provoking. He said, tell me if I've got this right. 
you are absolutely certain that God wants you to stop being the pastor there. Is that right? I said, yes. He said, but you have decided that you can't stop until you have another job? Is that true? I said, yes. And then he said, I was there at the beginning of the year when you preached on Abraham. I heard you say that God came to Abraham and told him to leave the land that he had known all his life. And when Abraham asked, where am I going to go to? You told us that God said to the land that I will show you. You said that faith trusts God to take the first step even when the second step is not clear. Now I wondered if he was going to ask me if he could have my job as being a pastor. (laughs) He said, you have to do what you believe. I will not give you a job, and I will tell you that you should not take any job except for the job of a pastor because that's who you are. Isn't that great? That's a good friend. It's a friend who could see that my heart was in one place and my head was in another place, And he also could see that to grow as a mature person, leave aside a person of faith, but to grow as a mature person means to become more and more aligned in your actions with your principles so that you behave in a way that follows your values rather than being, in effect, a person who tries to walk on two different roads at once. He could see that. If he could see that, Anyone who wants to follow Jesus, and I hope that every one of you wants to follow Jesus. You should. It's what you were made for. But anyone who wants to follow Jesus should be regularly asking herself, asking himself, am I divided up on the inside or can I move forward just as one person? James is going to teach us this morning, as he has in the last two weeks behind us, as we put to ourselves the kind of burning questions that God means to use to refine us. I want you to look at these two questions which James asks in chapter 3 of the letter that he wrote to those who were dispersed from Jerusalem out into the world where they had the potential to become lights for God's goodness where they found themselves. In verse 11 of chapter 3, James asks these questions. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. I hear James draws on everyday, ordinary experiences in nature to make a deep and profoundly important point for every person whose ears and heart are open. Plants and springs both produce according to their nature and not otherwise. One plant yields one fruit. Another plant, another fruit. The branches of a fig tree can't have olives growing on them because if you trace back through the trunk to the roots, they are fig tree roots. And it's the same with grapevines. They don't produce figs because like all plants, they make what they make. Grapes, not figs. Here's the principle. The fruits are determined by the roots. And you know this is true because it rhymes. (laughs) The same applies to the relationship between the spring, where you draw water, and its source. Deep underground, you have aquifers, permeable rock which can transmit groundwater. At the surface, 
The composition of the water depends on the composition of the water that is deep underground. If it's fresh down there, then you'll have fresh water up here. If it's salt water underground, the spring will be salty, and it cannot be both. It has to be one or the other. That's how it is with springs. That's how it is with plants. And this is about you now. That's how it should be with us. But often, it's not. Can you admit that about yourself? One of the unique features of human beings is that we are capable of producing fruit of different kind. Same tree, same vine, but different kinds of fruits grow in all of us. The same person can be the source of both kinds of waters, depending on who he's with or where he finds himself. At work, he's refreshing and nourishing like fresh water. But then at home, he's caustic, corrosive, and unpalatable like salt water, especially if he hasn't eaten in too long. Anyone else with me? (laughs) Here, it's time for each of us not to think of others, but to be honest with ourselves so that we can see truly the moments where we ourselves, right now where we are in life, know one thing and yet behave as if we believe something else where we find ourselves trying to walk on two roads at once that diverge, where we find ourselves growing grapes and figs, where we are yielding both fresh water and salt water. James gives an illustration of what he has in mind when he uses this metaphor in the verses that precede verse 11. Look at verse 9. With the tongue, he says, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, We curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. The way we talk in different environments is one of the most revealing signs of of an inconsistency in effect between behavior and belief. Have any of you in your own memory moments where what you say and what you're saying just don't fit with what you say you believe? Yes? Have you ever been shouting at your children not to shout? Yeah? Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only person. Speech, which blesses God as fresh water, and speech, which curses people that God loves and made in his image, is salt water. And the fact is, these two different kinds of water can't really come from the same source. They shouldn't be found in the same mouth, but sadly, they often are, which means there's an issue, and this is critical, not with your tongue, but with the source that is deep down underground, if you will. The problem with the fruit indicates a problem with the roots. And it's not only our speech in which we reveal our inner inconsistencies. And please listen now. I am using the pronoun our instead of your because the fact is absolutely every one of us is in the same boat with in some measure lacking that kind of consistency that we know we ought to have. So can I ask you all, if you're looking at yourself and judging yourself badly, to turn either to your right and left and tell yourself they're probably just as bad as I am. (laughs) You're not allowed to tell the person (laughs) beside you that they are, but trust me in this. Every one of us needs to grow in this area, every one of us. And that's what James wants. We accept that God loves everyone, but we behave as if his love is not for those people who we've judged as unworthy of it. That happens in us, right? When you judge someone. Or maybe you're this person. You believe 
God loves everyone. And then every time you look in the mirror, you think God does not love that person. Some of you will do both, both of those things. We know that everything we have from God, everything is a trust from him. And yet we are very slow to be generous and give away the things that we have. Some of you are growing in that area. All of us need to. Two different fruits growing on the same tree means something is wrong down at the level of the roots, which is why James offers the following assessment, the following statement of this phenomenon. My brothers and sisters, he says, this should not be so. It's very simple. He's saying this is not how it's supposed to be. Consistency rather than duplicity is the goal. Good fruit and not a mix of good and bad ought to be growing. Fresh water and not a mix of salt and fresh because as you know, the moment you introduce any salt, the whole spring is useless. Now, James does not just say it shouldn't be like this and say it should be consistency rather than this duplicity. Instead, he actually identifies the depths of the problem with a word that he actually invents. And if you know the book of James well, you'll know that more than once, he describes people who are trying to go in both ways as double-minded. Have some of you come across that phrase before? In Greek literature, the very first time the word that is translated in English as double-minded ever appears is in James. He coined this phrase because he was an astute observer of us, and the word in Greek is not double-minded, it is dipsychos. The word psyche in secular Greek literally meant either breath or life or soul. If you studied psychology, that's the root word there. You add a di at the beginning of it, and it literally means two-souled. A person who, though they're one person, on the outside, and maybe with what they say, turns out to be like someone who has two selves. It's as if there are two beings in there, both breathing, two lives at the same time, two souls, one going this way and the other going that way. Even if you've never heard this term dipsychos before, would you admit that you exhibit some of the signs of this disorder from time to time? Of course. And listen now, you admit it so that God himself through his word can work on you this morning. And that's the goal. And that's what's going to happen. James is also going to show us the way forward. And you need to find the way forward because sometimes you, you praise God with your mouth and then curse people who are made in his image. And that's not how it should be. There are many other instances of what psychos looks like in James's letter. And you may know them from your own experience. Here's one. A person of faith lacks the wisdom they need to know which way to go in life. Anyone relate to that? Yes or no? No one, no one here? Yes? Right. And so what do you do? Because you have faith, you pray to God and you say, dear God, please help me know the way to go. You're asking for wisdom. Has anyone in here done that? And then in a moment of clarity, God gives you enough information to know what he wants you to do. But then when it comes right to it, you don't do it right? Because you doubt it and you're not entirely sure or you haven't got another job lined up yet. And so in that moment, you don't receive anything at all from God. That is a scenario which James explains in the first chapter of his letter in verses five through eight. It's a double-minded person who trusts and doesn't trust at the same time. You can read it and look at it on your own 
in the first chapter of James. Here's another uh, picture James gives. A person wants genuine relationships. They want to have more connection with others. They want to grow in friendships. Any one of you want that? And so they sit down with someone, but every time the conversation starts going, instead of giving the other person room to talk, they're always interrupting. They're very quick to speak and slow to listen, especially when opinions come up around things that matter to them. They sometimes even erupt in anger, and so the other person is pushed away, and they can't understand why nobody wants to be around them. It's because they haven't yet learned to be quiet and let the other person have the room they need to grow. That's James 1, 19 through 20. How about this one? You say, I love God, and I can't understand yet still why he seems so far away, while all the while you still love things in the world which God himself does not love. And, and it's, it's hard maybe to look honestly at yourself, but when you do, you realize, oh yeah, that's probably not the kind of thing which God loves, but I love it so much I won't let go of it. And you wonder, why do I feel so distant from God? It's because you are dipsychos. You have one heart that goes after God and another heart that still goes after the things in this world which God has made plain enough are not his kinds of things. And so you will never find yourself in love with him in the way he wants you to be until you're able to turn away and say no there and yes here. Until you stop having two souls and start having one. That's James 4 verses 1 through 10. You, whether you know it or not, want to have one soul rather than two. You want what psychologists call personal integration. Is anyone uh, here familiar with that term uh, where, you, where you're described as an integrated person? That you have, yes or no? No? Okay, I'm so thankful I get to introduce this concept to you this morning because though James never speaks like this, I think this is just what he was observing. It's the question which we should put to ourselves and it's a question which ought to burn away that false soul in us, which is not what God wants us to be, so it can be one soul. It's the question, am I integrated? Okay, the word integrated, in Latin it comes from integer. Do you know what an integer is? You learned this when you were a little kid. An integer is a whole number rather than one that's divided up. And to be a person who is integrated uh, is to be someone, listen now, who exhibits a formal relationship of coherence between the various aspects of their total identity. They're the same person on Monday as they were on Sunday morning in church. They're the person who has goals and desires and drives which line up with one another and are in harmony with their principles and values. What she believes is expressed in how she behaves. Her inner life is consistent with her outer life. She's the same person in public and in private. She's a whole person rather than all divided up. Have you met someone who, who matches this sort of description, an integrated person? The question for you to ask is, am I integrated or am I dipsychos? Am I divided up? An integrated man is more likely to act in line with his moral judgments. And because of this, he tends to have a uniquely positive impact on the people around him because he's trustworthy. Because you know what you're going to get. Because he makes the world a better place for being a person of such integrity. A group of philosophers, theologians, ethicists, social scientists, and psychologists conducted a massive study 
of moral exemplars. These are people in history who've had a broad, positive impact socially. The kind of heroes that always come up in lists when we think of the people we want to be. Can you think of anyone like that? Some of you are thinking about Mother Teresa, right? Or Martin Luther King Jr. uh, or Gandhi, okay? When they conducted an in-depth study historically of what united these kinds of people, the thread that connected them was that they all exhibited a high degree of personal integration. They did what they believed rather than being pulled one way by one soul and another way by another soul. Listen to this. They were able to act in concert with their ideals, which meant they were able to be selfless. Think about the moments where you're really selfish. In those moments, what's happening is you know the right thing to do, but your impulses are dragging you off in the direction of doing the wrong thing. And this study revealed that, mo- that men and women who are massively good for the world are the kinds of people who are able to say no to their drives and desires based on what they say they believe. In James's word, Uh, Word They were not double-minded, but single-minded men and women, and it's what God wants for us to be. It's clear, in effect, to really understand what integration looks like when you consider the opposite, and this is what psychologists have called fragmentation. Okay, listen now. The fragmented person is someone who lacks coherence between what he claims to care about and what he actually is committed to. What he believes and how he behaves don't match. He leads a life of compartmentalization. Do you know what it's like to have your ideals and to put them in a box over here when it's convenient for you? That always leads one step at a time to the kind of behaviors that make us less than what God wants us to be, always. And it starts small, but in fact, by degrees, it leads to the kind of in effect, disobedience to God that can become the most monstrous and ugly things that human beings are able to do to each other. In 1986, the scholar R.J. Lifton published a study of the psychology of evil. He was a, a social scientist and a psychologist who was fascinated by the question, how is it possible for one human being to exhibit barbarity, cruelty, even murderous impulses toward another. He studied the so-called Nazi war doctors asking how could they possibly have committed the atrocities they did. Has anyone else in here ever wondered about how a person can do such a thing? Yes. Here's what he found. His answer to the question of how led him to invent a concept which he called doubling. This is how he defined it. The division of the self into two functioning holes so that a part self acts as an entire self. Does that sound to you like James's concept of dipsychos? It did to me. He said the way that doubling allowed Nazi doctors to avoid guilt was not by the elimination of conscience, but rather by what Lifton called the transfer of conscience. The requirements of right and wrong were transferred from the ordinary self to the Auschwitz self, which placed its behaviors within its own criteria for good, duty, loyalty to the group, responsibility for improving conditions in the camp, etc., thereby freeing the original self from responsibility for its actions, enabling the cruel self to justify its deeds. This is an extreme example, 
yes, but doubling or inner fragmentation is what's at work every time I say I believe one thing but then act in another. I let my conscience go onto the part of me that believes what's right and then I can have my own conscience for the part of me that wants to do what I feel like doing. And all of us do this. And the degree to which we do it undercuts our own experience of what God wants to give us. It makes us less than God wants us to be in the world around. And whether we see it or not, it separates us from God. And we need nothing more than to be connected with him. And it can be a small thing or a great thing. Here's a small example. The conflict between night guy and morning guy. Do some of you know that conflict? Morning guy says, I'm going to get up early and run. I'm going to come back and I'm going to read my Bible after that. And then I'm going to have a productive day at work. And so night guy sets the alarm, but then stays up way too late watching reruns and eating snacks. And then it's ice cream. And before you know it, he's got a stomachache, but he doesn't care. That's morning guy's problem. Does anyone else know this? Seinfeld? Yes? That's what we're talking about here. It starts like that, but then it leads by degrees to the place where we are not what God wants us to be. Let's come back to James for a moment. What James wanted in writing his letter was to refine those recipients so that in God's hands, they could be the kind of material that was workable to become a vessel that God would use to send his light out into the world and would be a treasure in the hands of the artisan. That's God's vision and view for you. And here's why James wants you to be integrated. I want to be very plain here. There are at least three reasons. There may be more. But the first reason is that when you are disintegrated, when you are fragmented, when you are dipsychos, you are a bad witness. And so when others who are wondering about who Christ is look at you, the, the information they gather from how you behave gives them misinformation. And it doesn't help them know God better. When I was sitting there with my friend who had to give my sermon back to me, I was telling him, maybe all of this talk about God being trustworthy is not really true. And it's just the same for each of us when we're divided between what we say, we believe, and how we behave. And for, for that first reason, James wants you individually, each of you, to become people of integrity so that at work, so that with your children, so that with your neighbors and your family, the way you conduct yourself presents true information about who God is. And he wants that for our whole church also, by the way, so that Renaissance Church is a church whose walk matches its talk. Uh, the fruit that is growing demonstrates that our roots are growing in the right place. That's definitely what God wants. First, it's so that our witness would be true. The second reason James wants you to be integrated is because when you're not integrated, life becomes increasingly miserable. Am I right about that? It is just no good always going on with an inner turmoil that's pulling you in two directions. And God does not want you to be miserable. Uh, this is important. You must not conclude from this that what God wants more than anything else is for me to be happy. If you believe that, you'll be disappointed. But it is not true that God wants his followers to be miserable people. He wants them to be united. And listen, even if that means that unity means that you're united in going through a hard time, which many of you will have to do, there is a distinct qualitative difference between going through a difficult time as one whole person as compared with going through a difficult time 
as a person who's divided up on the inside. Because God wants you to be a joyful Christian. He wants you to be integrated. That's the second reason. Here's the third reason. I leave this for last because I think it's by far the most important. James wants you to be integrated internally because God, God cannot be loved by you when you have two souls, but only when you have one. And God himself created you to be in relationship with him. And as long as you're dipsychos, God can't have you because God does not want part of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of your heart. And listen, please listen to me. He's not waiting to see whether you're integrated enough or whether you have a sincere enough faith or whether you behave always in the way that you claim to believe. That's not the prerequisite. What he wants is for you to bring your whole self, even if your whole self has many parts and is all shattered up on the inside, he wants you to bring all of that to him because when you do, what he'll do is he'll gather up all those bits and pieces of who you've become and he'll unite you into the whole man or woman that he is waiting to walk with through every step of her or his difficult or easy or medium or whatever it is, life at this stage and in this season. James wants you to be integrated because only an integrated person can have the kind of communion and fellowship with the God who made her. How will you achieve it? And this is where I want to be practical and, and this is, in effect, uh, this honors the kind of author that James is because in his letter, James is frequently very practical. Uh, not theoretical and all up here, but rather on the ground, this is how it works. And I want to give you a very clear picture of the answer of how you become an integrated person. Before I give it, I want to tell you this. Once I give it to you, you are responsible for it. I'm not. And God loves you too much to take responsibility for what you do with this away from you. Because if he did that, you would never become a real person. And God wants you to be a real person, not a robot who operates without any of her or his own will. So I'm gonna give you the steps toward integration that James gives, but it's up to you to take them. Do you wanna see them? Thank you. In chapter one, verse 21, here's what James says. Rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness. James knows that every one of us, when we take an honest look at ourselves, will find things which are growing in the soil of our hearts, which we know shouldn't be growing there. Uh, the, the, the verb in Greek, which is rid yourselves here, is the word for taking off an outer garment which has been soiled, which is too dirty to go on wearing. It was a very common image in, in ancient literature for the kind of moral filth that people lived with quite comfortably, but which, if they wanted to make progress, they had to take off, like one would take off a dirty outer garment. Now, you ask yourself honestly, what are the kinds of behaviors that I habitually engage in which definitely draw me on the path away from the one that I'm going to have to walk on if I'm going to have one heart for God? You have to ask yourself that honestly. And it doesn't have to be something sensationally awful. Maybe the time you give to that same old TV show builds up kinds of attitudes and actions in you that you know aren't the kinds that should be built up. Maybe it's time for you to stop watching that show. 
Or maybe the way that you spend time on the internet, it reinforces the kind of judgmentalism, meanness, sort of us against them mentality that you know makes you into the kind of divisive person that God doesn't want you to be. And so you have to decide, as James says, to take that off or rid yourself of it. Maybe there are images that you are constantly exposing yourself to which rot your soul. And you can't, you can't stop on your own, so get help. And I guarantee you there are people who would be so glad to join you in the fight against that rank wickedness and sordidness of any kind. But first, for you to become a person of one soul, is it requires your decisive action of ridding yourself, of taking those things off, of getting the help you need to in order to achieve that. That's the first step. And then the second positive step is in the second part of this verse. Here it is. And welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Notice the agricultural image again, the implanted word. That is a word which is ready to grow. And what James says is what you're required to do is welcome something with meekness that is going to be given to you. This is not an achievement, first of all, of yours, except for the fact that you decide to open your heart and receive something which is given. And what is given has the power to save your souls. And that word in Greek is psyche, the same word that comes when James says double-minded, dipsychos. Here, James tells you how to have a united soul which is not divided between that road and the other one, but rather is singular. And what's required is for you to welcome the word which God is ready to implant. Do some of you know that Jesus was regarded by his followers as the word of God that became flesh and lived among us? So that when he ascended and promised to put his own presence inside of anyone who would trust him, it was the promise to have God's own word in her heart forever. And Jesus said this, listen. He said, if you abide in my word, that is, if you make your home in my word, and my word is at home in you, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so this invitation from James to be an integrated person requires the decision to take off all that is rank and wicked and sordid and open our hearts to God's word, which, when it rests in our heart, saves us. Now, I bet you won't be surprised to know I'm really, really excited to talk about how God's word in our hearts saves us, but I'm out of time for this morning. So listen, so next week... I'm really excited about this. Next week, we'll raise the question of who am I actually? And James pushes his readers to ask that question. Who am I really? Because if you want to be integrated in the way that God wants you to, you have to say, I'm going to finally have my eyes open to see who I am. And God's word tells us who we are. And I'm going to leave you with this. You are beloved by God and made on purpose by him with a beautiful purpose in the world that he himself envisions for you. And when you are ready to let him hold you together and put aside all those other things and then carry you forward, you cannot even imagine the good that it will be for your own soul and for the souls of those people that God brings into your path. And the same is true of us as a church altogether. I, I hope if you're not able to be here next week, you'll tune in to hear how God's word teaches us who we are. 
For now, let's join our hearts, our souls in prayer to the God who wants to make us from the inside out new. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your servant, James, who is such an apt teacher. I thank you for the wisdom that shows us that your desire for us is that we would be united on the inside. And I ask very simply that your spirit would be present with us now as we continue to worship together to change us, each one of us, from the inside out so that we become people whose souls are united and who are able to be good witnesses, who find the joy of being people of integrity and who are able to be in genuine relationships with you because you are changing us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.